Take your Bibles today and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're actually going to spend uh, all of our time today in 1 Timothy 3 as we have looked at this series on what, uh, what is the church as we see here is the church. What, what is God's plan for the church that he has established? Uh, what are the expectations he's put forth for the church? And um, we, we looked at, we spent the first few weeks looking at the foundation and the purposes of the church. And now we, we turn kind of towards more of the specifics of the church uh, because, as I told you at the beginning, the church is the people, right? It's not just a place, it's not a building. Um, the, now, we, we do meet in a building for, for local church, um, but more importantly, what is it that God has set up? In the church, and so now we look more towards the people of the church, and we're going to begin today with the study of, of what is a pastor. And this may take you by surprise. This is a two-part message. Um, I found that out very quickly as I began to write this. Um, that this is going to take some time uh, to work through, and so we're going to spend the bulk of our time. You have the the notes there in your uh, bulletin. We're going to spend uh, our entire time today on that first point of what is the, the qualifications of a pastor. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer today as we open uh, the word of God together. Father, we are so thankful uh, for the time that we have set apart in our service today to study the word of God together, to uh, consider what does it mean for our lives. We thank you for the church that you have established, uh, that, that you have uh, bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for this local body of believers uh, where we meet here today. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and hearts today towards uh, what is a pastor? What is a pastor called to do? What is a pastor called to, to be like? Lord, this, this is an important thing for us to understand um, if we're going to carry out uh, the mission of the church. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, use your word in our hearts, that you would grow us, change us, mold us and make us in the image of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Have you ever found yourself staring at a job description for something you wanted to do, but wrestled with whether or not you genuinely met the qualifications that the people had set forth? Uh, maybe uh, there are times in your career or in your life where, as a career, you're looking for a new job, and so you start to read these things that, that people want to do, want you to do in a certain job, or you desire to, and you desire to take that next step, or maybe it's something you're volunteering for, but the requirements for doing so leaving you feel leave you feeling inadequate, um, unsure of whether or not you meet the, what what they're looking for, right? And if you ever had that feeling in your life, like maybe I don't meet the qualifications for, for this job or this position, then you would have felt right at home in my office this week. Now, not because I was trolling the internet looking for jobs, okay? But because of where we turn in our study this week. It has been well observed that a pastor is the recipient of a passage of Scripture's application, conviction, and work before anyone else. A pastor is not called to microwave someone else's sermons, callously delivering them to a crowd, but he is called to wrestle with the truths of Scripture and give them to the people entrusted to his care. And as with all of God's work, some passages hit harder than others because of their nature, their context, and the season of life that one finds himself in. 
And that's where I find myself this week as I wrestled with this passage um, for us to look at today. This hit hard. I'll just tell you that. As a pastor, this is a passage that just every time you read it and you study it, um, it's convicting. This message is a very important one for us to undertake of what is a pastor. A study released this week revealed that for the fourth straight year, the trust of the general population in America in clergy fell again to a record low of 32%. It is vital then that we as a church understand what does God call pastors to be and what does God call pastors to do. If we want to continue to advance the mission of God's kingdom, we must know God's standard for his leaders. And now I'm going to instill you with some confidence, okay? Here you go, you ready? I feel woefully unqualified to give you this message, okay? The passages before us today and next Sunday are extremely convicting. They remind me how gracious God is to allow me to be a pastor. They remind me of how much growth I still need in my own heart and life as I seek to carry out God's call in my life. So if you will extend me the grace of understanding that I still wrestle with my own faults and flaws in this arena today and every day, then we'll undertake this study together of what is a pastor. What is the man that God calls to lead the local church supposed to be like, and what does he do? And what we're going to see over the next couple weeks is this. A pastor is called by God to lead God's people in conduct, serve God's mission and overseeing God's church, and minister to God's people as an under-shepherd of Jesus, the good shepherd. That is a long statement, but I feel like it encapsulates exactly what the scriptures teach us about what pastors are called to do. He is one who is, who is called by God to, to lead God's people in, in how we live the Christian life. Pastors are called to set an example. They're called, uh, we're going to see in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 today, uh, to be an example for the, for the flock that, is before, that God has entrusted to them. They are called to, to serve as, as an overseer uh, of the church that God has, has given them. They're called to to, to many different roles in that arena as well. And they are called to minister to the people, to God's people, not as the shepherd, right? That's Jesus, the good shepherd, but as an under-shepherd, one who cares for God's flock. And so today, I would like us to undertake here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the qualifications that God sets forth for a pastor, And it begins in verse 1 with a godly desire that God puts in the hearts of those whom he calls into ministry. Paul says here, he's writing to Timothy, who's his his protege, his son in the faith, who is also a pastor in Ephesus, by the way. He says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and overseer is one of the three words that the New Testament uses to refer to pastors, he desires a noble task. So Paul is exhorting here to Timothy, who is pastoring in Ephesus, that one who is desiring to be an overseer, a pastor, is desiring a a noble work, a noble task. And so from the get-go, there's something interesting here that just maybe it seems simple and basic, but I think it's an observation we need to make, that there is nothing wrong with desiring to be a pastor. Sometimes I think, you know, pastors, they didn't have anything else to do, so they just went and been a pastor, you know. In fact, it is the calling of God 
placed in the heart and life of the men who do this work to be a pastor. God gives his servants a desire to serve him. And while he does not gift all in the same ways or even burden every heart in the same manner or towards the same things, it is God who works in us. And in the case of pastors, it is a godly desire that one has to be a pastor. And and Paul says it's a noble, it's a good work, it's a good thing. It's an important work. But it is not a work to be taken lightly. Being a pastor is not just a, a career choice or a, well, that's the next logical thing for my life. It comes from God's unique work in the life of that man. Paul was very clear that it was God's work in his own life. We, we back, if you backed up here to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. You will see from scripture that the work of a pastor is a high calling. It is like anything. It has its own unique stresses and pressures. And I think as a local church, it behooves us to encourage young men to consider the calling of God on their lives into ministry. That is one of the things that a church should do is, is encourage young men to, to consider, is, does God have you, would God have you to be a pastor? To be in the ministry. At the same time, I believe we also need to make sure that it is God's calling them into ministry. It's not our job to say that every, every person is to be a this or that, right? It's God's work. And that's not because being, part, being a pastor makes you some part of special club and we only let in certain people, okay? It's because doing God's work requires God's hand of blessing and strength. Let me share with you one of the quotes that has never left me, or that, that Charles Spurgeon, are you familiar with Charles Spurgeon? One of the great preachers of the last century. Renowned preacher Charles Spurgeon, once he had a college of preachers, and, and he, had these, he would get up and deliver these, these lectures. And there's a book that's entitled Lectures to My Students. And it was these, all these lectures that Charles Spurgeon would give to these, these men who were studying for the ministry. And in one of those lectures, Charles Spurgeon told his preachers in the college there, that if they in their lives could do anything else besides being a pastor, they should go and do it. That's that's, that's how how you win friends and influence people, right? Why did he say that? He said that because the burden of pastoring is a real thing. He said that because if, if God has not called you to be a pastor, you shouldn't be. But that is God's work. In, their, in, in, in that man's life. And, and I can tell you, I mean, I've experienced that in my own life. I've done different things as I was, as I was in college and seminary. And I would tell you, that, that, that's, that is an encouraging thing to me I read from, from Charles Spurgeon because I can tell you with, with my life, there's nothing else I feel like God has called me to do. And I don't say that because, ooh, look at him, right? It's just, that's a real thing. It's hard to put into words sometimes. God also has very high standards for his chosen servants. He takes very seriously the work of of leading people in his ways and teaching them his word. For the strength and grace of the Lord empowers his servants whom he has called. And so God calls his men into the ministry. And if you sense the Lord may be working in your heart in this way, whether you be a young man or maybe you're, you're further along in life, I would encourage you to open up your life to the Lord in that way. 
that you would seek him and his will for your life, that you would submit yourself to him and you would ask him to show you clearly if that is his will for your heart and life and you would pursue him. Along the way, we need to take heed to the requirements that God lays out. For if one who fills the role of pastor is led to a local body of God's church, he must meet God's qualifications. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time in verses 2 through 7 today, looking at the godly character that God lays out here for pastors. And it's, it's a long list, okay? There's a list that's like it in Titus. I chose the one here in Timothy. It's a little more uh, extensive, but you can, you can look at the one that Titus, that Paul writes there, and you can compare the two. These verses spell out the godly character of a man who is fit to hold the position of pastor. But this does not mean a pastor is perfect. Thank goodness for that. Okay. But these are things that should be true of a life of a pastor. There's, now, there's certain ones in here that are going to be cut and dry. Like, okay, yes, that is this person, or no, it's not. There are others that, by God's grace, you grow in more and more over time. And if you're considering God's call on your life into the ministry, you should know this list and compare your life against, ask, against it and ask God for his help. If there's a local church that is, that is searching for a pastor, the guidelines for what a pastor is to be are found in the word of God. There are a lot of thoughts out there and a lot of ideas about what we want in a pastor. But the baseline of where you have to start is right here. It has to start in the word of God. In the end, a pastor is called to do God's work in God's way. Therefore, he must meet God's qualifications to submit himself to God's rule in his life. Do you get the idea that a pastor is one who's accountable to God? It's true. Just as any Christian is, right? So first, Paul says here, therefore, okay, because, because it's a good work, it's a thing that's noble to, be, to desire that, an overseer must be above reproach. This is the very first qualification. It really is a major descriptor. Sometimes um, as you study this passage, some people will not even put this on the list. They'll kind of make this the overarching theme for the rest of the list. I, I think you can take it both ways. I've kind of just put it number one, and we'll go from there. Because it is, it, it kind of describes everything else that goes on in the rest of these verses. The idea of being above reproach uh, also means to be blameless. One who is not known for doing wrong. Now, again, this word does not and cannot mean sinless. Because pastors are people too, right? But the idea is, what is the general character of this man who says that God has called him to be a pastor. The idea here is that sin does not characterize his life. I think the simplest way is to put it like this. If someone came to you, okay, and regarding your pastor and said, you know, I saw the pastor doing and fill in whatever sin you want in the blank. How does the character of that man warrant you to respond? If his character makes you say something like, yeah, I can see that. You know, he, he kind of is that way. You know, he, he just, he likes to sin all the time. That's just, then I would submit to you that he's not living a life that is above reproach, right? If he is a man who is constantly living in sin, he's not qualified to be a pastor. Again, not that he's perfect, but when he does sin, because it happens a lot, right? He deals with that in a biblical way. There's a right way and a wrong way to deal with sin. And if someone's going to be blameless and above reproach, we must deal with sin in a proper way. 
Pastors are accountable before the Lord for how they live their lives. If a pastor preaches one way and lives another, his message is at best ineffective, and at worst, it's a false message, right? So we continue on. He is to be above reproach. Secondly, Paul says, the husband of one wife. Now, there are two major things I want to point out here in this requirement. Number one, I think this is, I would call this the more minor of the two, but it's becoming more and more a major point. If the requirement is that a pastor be the husband of one wife, you understand that a pastor must be a man. Okay? It would be rather difficult for a woman to be the husband of one wife, notwithstanding our strange culture we live in. Okay? But I'll tell you, the Greek here behind this is not ambiguous. Okay? It is very clear. God has made the role of the pastor to be one reserved for men in the church. Why? Because women are inferior? No, because this is the plan of God. That men are to be the leaders. It's the way in the home. It's the way in the church that God has set forth. Secondly, what does this phrase mean as it pertains to these relationships? Well, there's the phrasing here in Greek. When it says here, the husband of one wife, quite literally, the, the, the wording is this. He is a one-woman man. That's, that's what the Greek carries there. Now, this is not one woman at a time, okay? It communicates being singly devoted to and faithful to his wife. This speaks to a pastor's character pertaining to his relationship with his wife. Would you agree that there are many men who have been married only once in their life, but they are not characterized as one-women men. Right? They disgrace their marriage relationship that is created and sanctified by God, and as such, people like that, men like that, don't meet this qualification because they're not one-women men. This man must be devoted in his heart and his mind to the woman who is his wife, He does not give his affections to other women, leading them on. He doesn't lust after other women, engaging in sexual sin in mind or body. If a pastor is married, his relationship to his wife is of utmost importance. If that relationship is not right, how can he effectively lead God's people? This passage does not forbid men whose wives have passed away from remarrying and continuing on in the ministry. They have honored their marriage vows and commitments until death, the natural ender of such a relationship. So the biggest question that comes out of this verse is, okay, so what do we do with divorce, right? Because that's, that's really the, the, the one that's, that's hotly debated in this verse. The sin of divorce is, is not new in our society today. You read the scriptures, you find out Israel in the Old Testament was struggling with that, Right? It permeates our world. It has reared its ugly head in the church. And one of the things you need to understand is divorce is always ugly. People are always hurt. There's always a mess and there's always fallout. That's just the natural consequences of it. And I want to be very clear, okay, when it comes to interpreting this verse. I have read a lot about this and studied a lot about it. And good men differ on how you interpret this verse, okay? I understand that going into it. I also believe you cannot limit your belief on this topic to this passage alone. You you have to take the whole of Scripture's view on it. 
And I'm not going to take the time to walk through every verse in the scripture about divorce and remarriage and those sorts of things. I'm going to try to give you the concise view and tell you where I land on it. God makes it very clear in the Bible he hates divorce. Now, there are certain instances in which God allows divorce to occur. Again, those are murky and waters that require very careful navigation as you study the word of God. And I think anyone who sees marriage as easily dissolvable as I can just do whatever I want, I think that person doesn't know anything about God's view on marriage and divorce. As I study this passage, though, and I take into account what God says here and and other places on marriage and divorce, I believe that in general, divorced men are precluded from being pastors. It's a very conservative view. I understand that. As I study the scriptures, that's what I believe. This is not because people who are divorced are helpless, hopeless causes, and they're useless to God. I want to be very clear about that as well. That God does not cast aside repentant sinners, that he still uses redeemed sinners, myself and you, all of us who know the Lord included, right? Each day of our lives, no matter what we've done. And we've experienced great ministry and blessing from many people from many different walks of life, right? I've seen God use individuals who come from very tough backgrounds and have suffered divorce in their own lives as redeemed trophies of grace. I also understand from observing and talking to many different people and seeing in my own life, there are consequences of sin that I don't get to control. Right? God calls for a pastor to be a leader in his character. Therefore, this is one of the qualifications he set forth. Now, there are perhaps times a compelling case could be made for a man who has a divorce in his background to be a pastor. But I believe in general, as you study the scripture, this is what God's standard is here. And again, I want to tell you, as with everything, I don't seek to stand up here and tell you my personal opinion. Okay? What I seek to tell you is what, what God says in his word. And so Paul continues. Right? We're only on point two. Number three, Paul says this man is to be one who is sober-minded. This is a calling for such a man to be clear-minded, alert. The idea is, is watchful. He is not given to excesses in his life. He must be able to make clear choices, wise decisions that are free of negative influence. As leaders of the church, pastors need to be able to evaluate situations and make God-honoring decisions. Need to be sober-minded. Number four, a pastor, Paul says, must be, God says through Paul, must be self-controlled. A pastor must be someone who regulates his own behavior with the help of God. He is balanced. He makes sound decisions. Now, this does not mean that he is not passionate, but that his passions do not run his life and hijack his decision-making abilities. He needs to correctly order the priorities of his life so that he may do the work of God most effectively. I can tell you from personal experience, um, I work in an office by myself a lot, right, as a pastor. If I'm not out there doing other things, I'm here, right, working on messages and things like that. You you need self-control in your life if you're going to continue to do the work that God has called you to do in an orderly fashion. Number five, Paul says here he's to be respectable. The idea behind this is, is orderly and properly organized. Leadership of God's people takes 
organization. He must possess self-discipline, not living a chaotic life. He must be ordered under God's expectations so that he can fulfill his calling from God. Leading people takes organization. Things don't just happen. Number six, he is to be hospitable. This is an interesting word, hospitable. I mean, we, we probably have a general understanding of what it means, but it's interesting what, what's used in the Greek. The word literally means loving strangers. This is someone who is not cliquish or given to favoritism, who is not stuck within himself but reaches out. As one who is called to do the work of the gospel, he must be able to connect with people for the sake of sharing the gospel. A pastor cannot be someone who is unapproachable or aloof from the people. He must be connected to the people that God has called him to serve. Number seven, at the end of verse two, able to teach. This is interesting. This is the only one in the list, by the way, that that you can make an argument has nothing to do with character and more with ability, although I think character informs ability here. This is a, a gifting or a skill. There's no minimum skill re- level required here. There's not any rubric or standard. We understand that, that some are going to be more naturally gifted at teaching than others. There's always room, though, to grow and improve in this area. And it is also certainly unhelpful for a pastor or others connected to a specific pastor to spend time comparing his ability to others. I mean, that's a natural tendency, right? As someone who does this for a living, to, to look around and say, well, am I better than that or not? Let me tell you a story, okay? I'll tell you a story of what not to do. When I was a youth pastor, I went to lunch with an eighth grader one day. And we were sitting there having lunch, and we were talking about youth group and about what we were learning and those sorts of things. And I made this comment. You know, we were talking about, you know, was he getting anything out of the lessons and all that? And I said, you know, I understand. His name is Nathaniel. Nathaniel, if you're listening to this, I love you, buddy, okay? I said, I understand, Nathaniel. I'm probably not the most interesting person in the world to listen to. You know, ooh, throw the fishing line out there, right? He goes, yeah, you're not. (laughs) And he just keeps going on. And I was like, well, (laughs) we can't spend our lives looking around, right, and comparing ourselves to others because we want to be better than this person or better than that person. But there's always room to grow in these things. There should be some level of giftedness in this area if a man feels called to ministry and desires this role. A pastor must be committed to the study and the teaching of God's word. His character also has bearing on this gift. If you do not do as you teach, you're not an effective teacher. As a pastor, there's no do as I say and not as I do, right? Number eight, not a drunkard. The pastor is not one who gives himself to alcohol. He must be self-controlled in his private life as well. The scriptures communicate clearly the dangers of alcohol and the effects it has on our lives. There's no place for behavior like this in the life of the leader of the church. One who is to be a leader for God must have affections that differ from the world. And here's another area in which the pastor is to set an example for others in the flock to follow. Number nine, not violent. 
This word communicates when the word violent is one who is a brawler. He's a contentious person. A pastor is not a person who settles problems with physical violence. He does not allow a desire for retaliation and revenge and retribution to color his responses in life. Instead, he responds with regulated behavior. Actually, this number nine is tied to number 10. Paul says, not violent, but gentle. The idea here is he should be forbearing, reasonable, and moderate. He is considerate of others. This has great bearing on how he handles conflict, especially when contrasted with the previous ban on being violent. In life, we experience our fair share of wrongs. Have you ever been wronged by somebody in life? As a pastor, that's going to happen too, because again, we're people, right? It's going to happen. A pastor then must be able to be some, must be someone who is able to show grace to people who wrong him. Number eleven, not quarrelsome. The word what we're trying to communicate here is this person is is peaceable. He is not contentious. A quarrelsome person brings about disunity and disharmony. A a quarrelsome person creates conflict. And conflict within a church does not lead to a church effectively ministering the gospel and carrying out its God-given purposes. So God's man who is called to lead the church should not act in such a manner. A pastor is responsible for leading a church, so he must be the one who knows how to work through difficulties and disagreements and not keep creating them. Now, this is not the same as standing on the truth of God's word. You understand that if you stand for truth in a fallen world, sometimes you're going to create conflict, right? But if you stand on the truth of God, in the love of God, and and people have a problem with that, You say, I'd rather serve God than men. But in general, right, this is not someone who is seeking to go around and stir up trouble all the time. Number 12, at the end of verse 3, not a lover of money. A pastor is not one who is covetous or greedy. He is not in this for the money. Now, money is a great tool, but a terrible God. And many a life has been ruined by a pursuit of riches. Now, it's not wrong for a pastor to be paid or to seek to take care of the family that God may give him. That's being responsible. However, if financial ambitions become the overriding motivation of a pastor's pursuits, he's left the godly motivations behind. Then we get to the 13th requirement, It takes up here two verses. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So now we turn to the home of the pastor as we get to the 13th item on the list. And I think it's fitting. I mean, everything God does is with a purpose. It's fitting that this is so late in the list. Why? Because a pastor's first responsibility is to evaluate himself and his own relationship to the Lord. Who 
a pastor is in his personal life will be reflected in his home. That's who he really is at his core. So a pastor is to be one who manages his own household well. The home is the proving ground of a spiritual leader. It is impossible to be a godly leader in public but fail in your home. And I'll say that again. It is impossible to be a godly leader in public and fail in your home. If you're failing in your home and not being godly in your home, you're not being godly when you're out here either. You can't separate those two. No matter what God has called you to, your primary ministry is your home. Because if you lose your family, you've lost the greatest ministry God has ever given you. God puts a premium then on his followers, not just pastors, but all his followers, raising their children to follow and serve him. He doesn't call his servants to sacrifice their families for the sake of the church. God does not call on pastors to neglect their responsibilities as husbands and fathers for the sake of building bigger buildings, preaching greater messages, or attempting to save other families and marriages. He doesn't guilt pastors into giving every waking and best minute to someone else's home. We have to understand pastors are not superhumans. They're not above the commands and expectations of God. They are not removed from the temptations of mankind. Yes, they are held to a high and biblical standard, and part of this then is how they run their own homes. If a church knows its pastor as one man, and his family knows him as something that's completely different, you have a problem. Now, this does not mean that there will not be times that a pastor must sacrifice time with family or even postpone family events in order to help a herding sheep or minister in time of emergency or great difficulty in one's life. That's the calling of a pastor. What I'm telling you is it's a life of balance. How a pastor parents his children, treats his wife, and how his children and wife respond to his leadership speaks volumes for the character of that man. So pastors should be leaders in this area of Christian living. Again, this is not a call to perfection, but there should be a pattern of growth, change, and obedience. And I would say this, this is also not to say that if a pastor's child makes bad decisions, that it is always that pastor's fault, right? One of the things we have to come to terms with is that people are responsible to the Lord for their own choices and actions. At the same time, there must be constant evaluations in the lives of any parent of how they're doing on things in their parenting relationship with their children. If you are, if you are in, your, in your relationship as a parent to your child, consistently seeing fruit in your children's lives that bothers you, and you say, it just keeps happening, I don't know what to do, you need to look inside because the problem isn't out there, the problem's in here. There's something going on we need to address, and we're not addressing it. And by God's grace, if he allows you to see this before your time of parental influence has passed, you have time to make a course correction and seek to do what's right. That's called being accountable. And that's a good thing. And if a pastor cannot follow God's instructions on how to guide his home, Paul rightly asks the questions, how can he follow God's instructions on how to, how to guide the local church? Fourteenth on the list. He must not be a recent 
convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall under the condemnation of the devil. Pastor is not to be a recent convert. The word here means newly planted. Growth as a Christian takes time. Now, it does not mean it is impossible for a new believer to be a witness and a testimony for the Lord. Indeed, with the Holy Spirit indwelling a believer, he can be a great testimony to those in his life to share with them the gospel as best he can. However, leading a body of believers takes some discipleship and it takes some growth. And Paul here highlights a sin that pastors are, can be very vulnerable to, and that is pride. A new Christian, Paul argues, in such a role would be particularly susceptible to this. And indeed, experienced pastors face this struggle. Because in general, within the body of believers, people look up to pastors. They're to be the declarers of truth, living out that truth. They're to be examples for the flock of God. And it can be easy for such a one to look around and in pride begin to place himself in a sinful, elevated position, judging others and failing to humbly admit his own sin. It can be tempting to see a pastoral position as a place of power and authority alone. And Paul makes it clear this is not God's call on the lives of pastors. They are to humbly lead God's people closer to the Lord. They are to do the work God has called them to do and empowers them to do. It's a noble and incredible calling, but it must be continually carried out in humility before the Lord. So therefore, let a pastor be invested in and trained in the ways of the Lord, that he, lest he more easily fall into the condemnation of the devil. We read in the scriptures of Satan, how he was cast from heaven due directly to his pride, and he encourages this pride in our sinful flesh today. And pastors must be on guard against pride as they do the work of the kingdom. And that brings us to the 15th thing that Paul mentions here lastly today in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. A pastor should have a good testimony before those who are outside the church. He should be one who in his community is well thought of as far as his character goes. Now, not everyone's going to agree with a pastor's theology in a fallen world, right? When he preaches truth, there will be many who are convicted by that truth and don't like that. But if his character is one that is unkind, antagonistic, caustic, and unrighteous, he's not going to bring glory and honor to the name of God. Again, this is no different than God's expectation for all believers, but this is especially true for pastors, because failure in this will bring disgrace, reproach, disdain upon the name of the gospel. If a pastor acts with godly character in the situations he faces in the world, Paul says he avoids the traps, the snares that are set up by Satan. I will continue to remind us of this, that as a Christian, Satan is ever interested in your life. Because if he cannot have your soul, he'll make you as useless to God as he possibly can. He wishes to besmirch the name of Jesus. And when Christians fail to live for the glory of God and choose sin over obedience to God, they fall into the snare of the devil. 
When Christians fail and fall, there is potential for great damage for the gospel to be done. When pastors fail, untold numbers of lives are hurt. Christians in that pastor's local church, when he fails, are hurt. Members of the community are turned away from the gospel. People who do not live in that community are hurt as the story spreads to family members and friends about, can you believe what this pastor did? Children are hurt as parents who experience the failing of sin react in a wrong way, raising their children in a reactionary manner, whether it is disobedient believers in church or by leaving a church completely. Now let us be clear, a pastor's failing does not excuse sinful reactionary behaviors. I imagine in a room like this, there are people who have been in churches and you've been hurt, you've been burned in church. But just because you were sinned against does not give you license to live in sin. Reacting to that sin. And that's not a call to, well, just get over it, right? It's going to take time. It's going to take working through some things. But it's an understanding that just because I was sinned against doesn't give me the ability to go out and do something wrong. There are those whose lives will never be the same because a Christian and furthermore a pastor made a life-altering, horrible decision or lived his life in a way that did not reflect the gospel he claimed to preach. It is a heavy calling and one that requires God's grace and strength. And a pastor has to be one who stays close to the Lord, who lives in a way that honors and glorifies him. And by living in this way, a pastor sets the example for others to follow to live in this way before a watching world. A pastor is called by God to lead God's people in conduct, serve God's mission in overseeing God's church, and minister to God's people as an under-shepherd of Jesus, the good shepherd. Pastoring is an important work. God says it is noble and good. And men, if God has placed within your, in your heart to the desire to be a pastor, that's a good thing. It is also a work which requires incredible commitment to Christ-likeness. You read these 15 things on this list and you understand this. You do not stumble into these things. It takes intentional growth in the things of the Lord, continually submitting yourself to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And as a church seeks to carry out its God-given purposes, then it must seek out a pastor who meets God's standard. It is always better to have a man of God in God's time than to just have someone to fill a seat. No church ever looking for a pastor should just settle because we just need somebody. Attend church long enough and you'll find yourself in a place that's in need of a pastor. You might even find yourself involved in the process of finding a pastor for a church. And so it is vital then to find a man who fits God's description first and foremost and all other desires or qualifications are secondary. So where do we come to at the end of this message today? A very personal request. As a pastor, I would ask you to remember this list and pray for pastors in light of it. 
as your pastor, I need the help of the Lord to live for his glory, empowered by him to carry out the mission he's called me to fulfill. Like any other person, I am susceptible to sin and must fight it with the help of the Holy Spirit. So would you pray for me and other pastors you know? Would you pray for God's strength, a humble heart, a boldness in the things of God, and wisdom for personal and family life? The measure of a pastor is his faithfulness to the Lord as he seeks to carry out God's work. Father, we thank you for the day you've given us to be in your house. Thank you for the word of God that changes our hearts and lives. Thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ that has been poured out and the salvation that is offered in him and him alone. We thank you for the church that you have set up. And Lord, we ask that if we as a local body seek to have an influence and an impact here in the, the area you've given us, you'd help us to do so in a way that honors and glorifies you. That you would help us to do things not the convenient way or the preferential way, but a way that honors and glorifies God. Lord, we, we thank you for pastors. In this room, there are probably tens if not hundreds of pastors represented who have had an influence in our lives at some point in our lives. Whether it be at a week at camp or at a church we've been to or in this church, many men who have pastored here. Lord, we, we thank you for the men that you have used in our lives to proclaim the gospel, to disciple us, to grow us in you. Lord, we pray as the gospel goes forth in this country and around the world today, that you would be with the pastors who preach the word of God today. You would empower them. You would strengthen them. Lord, help me as a pastor to follow you and serve you and you alone, to obey you, to live in your strength. Lord, help us as a body to grow closer to you each day, taking the next spiritual step you have called us to take. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.